how do you be at one with everything? The good, the bad, the ugly, the mean, the happy, the joy. I am all of that. I'm all of that. There is no separation. And when I can embrace all that, can I be connected to all that is even when I don't like what is happening? You're listening to Deidre Fay on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you listen to this podcast, you probably know by now that we are partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. And there's a reason why. It's because Praxis really can help you transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based approaches. ACT, DBT, compassion-focused therapy. And we love Praxis so much, especially because our very own Debbie Sorensen is going to be doing a workshop through Praxis. Tell us about it, Debbie. Yes, I'm doing a webinar on acceptance commitment therapy for burnout. This is for therapists who are working with clients who are burnt out. And of course, as therapists, we are also (laughs) occasionally may experience our own burnout. So hopefully it will be helpful for that too. It starts August 25th and it's on Wednesday afternoons just for a few Wednesdays in a row. Uh, So you can check it out on the Praxis website and learn more. I hope you can join me if you're a therapist. It'd be great to have you there. And for all of the live online courses that Praxis offers, you can go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and get a discount code. Exciting news. I'm going to be taking a group of folks to Nosara, Costa Rica in April 2022. We're going to be staying at Blue Spirit, which is a beautiful retreat center there. And we're going to be exploring psychological flexibility. I'm going to have a yoga teacher with me. So we'll be doing some movement and then just a lot of rest and restoration on the beach in Costa Rica in one of the blue zones of the world. So join me. You can find out more at drdianahill.com. So today on the podcast, we have Deidre Fay, who's an expert in yoga and attachment theory and how to help people become what she describes as more safely embodied. And uh, I think that the reason why I was really interested in having her on is because she brings an integrative approach to something that a lot of people experience, whether you have experienced trauma in your life or you've maybe had experience of extreme anxiety or an eating disorder. A lot of times we avoid the feelings and sensations that show up in our bodies and we can get really disconnected from our bodies. Yeah, I've noticed in my practice over the years, especially often with trauma when I've worked with PTSD or trauma, but other types of extreme distress is that people can get a little bit numbed out, disconnected from all aspects of their experience. So they might avoid certain memories or thoughts. They might get really disconnected from their feelings where they can't really 
understand them or feel them or name them. And also from body sensations where it's almost like they're so strong, people have sort of learned over time to just shut down and disconnect. And I think that approaches like these can be really helpful because it's a gentle way to reconnect with your body. It's really, it's a form of exposure. I think sometimes we think of trauma exposure as you know, going back to a memory that we've been avoided, avoiding of a traumatic event. But this is really exposure to the sensations in our body, to our feelings, right? Like the, the feelings that come up in our body and in our emotions. And it's a very, it's one way to do that. That's a very gentle approach. Yeah, it's a really gentle approach. And it also incorporates a lot of theory from like compassion focused approaches as well. And in this episode, Deidre goes through some specific skills that she uses in her program. One of the, the practices that she teaches early on is around um, creating a sense of belonging. Creating a sense of belonging can be really helpful and grounding for folks. Another practice that we talk about is a really simple mantra that I use a lot, which is a breathing in the word hum and then breathing out the word sa. And that's a really grounding practice because it's working with your breath. It's also helping you kind of focus your mind on one thing in the present moment. And it's also that sound hum and saw is that humming aspect. And there is some emerging research on humming and its benefits in terms of our physiology. So that's a really sweet one that I liked a lot. And then there were some other ones that she does in there that are more kind of physicalizing parts of ourselves. And that is helpful too, because we can kind of take whatever we're feeling inside and if we can pull it out and look at it, then we can start to realize we aren't what we are feeling. We're more the observer self, observing what we're feeling. And with all these practices, hopefully we can get a little bit more flexible with our inner experience. We can choose to feel what's happening in our body, but we can also choose to be engaged in our lives and in the world around us. Yeah, and I think you have some resources to share with listeners, Diana, who want to learn more about this. Yeah, so I've been kind of diving into this intersection of yoga and contemplative practice and ACT. And I teach every Tuesday uh, a, a class that's free for folks. And all my recordings are available on my website. You can listen to talks that I've given, but also be able to do some of these practices. So welcome. Today, I'm really thrilled to have Deirdre Fay on the show. She teaches a radically positive approach to healing trauma. And Deirdre's most recent book is Becoming Safely Embodied. It became a bestseller before it was even published, and it's based on her Becoming Safely Embodied groups, which she started in 1996 and continues to lead online. Deirdre is the author of Attachment-Based Yoga and Meditation for Trauma Recovery, co-author of Attachment Disturbances for Adults, as well as the co-author of Chapters in Neurobiological Treatments of Trauma Dissociation a former supervisor at the Trauma Center, and she's certified in internal family therapy and a qualified trainer in mindful self-compassion. She's a respected international teacher and mentor for working safely with the body. And she's joining us from France. So welcome, Deirdre. It's wonderful to have you here. Oh, Diana, always so good to talk to you. And I first met you at a Compassionate Mind Foundation retreat a number of years ago. I was enamored by you. So there was a number of leaders in the field of compassion. Paul Gilbert was there. Uh, Dennis Church and Laura Silverstein were there and Kelly Wilson. And you got up to do your talk and you were integrating yoga postures into our experiential approach. And I was like, ooh, I like her. 
I want to I want to learn more about her. So I'm I'm excited to learn more from you today. And also with trauma, I mean, how can you be a therapist or just a human on this planet without needing to learn how to navigate it? So welcome. And I, I think a good place to start is just what you mean by safely embodied, because that's the the title of your book. And I'm curious what you mean by that, becoming safely embodied. I'll give you the short story. My own trauma history came up in the late 80s when I lived at a yoga ashram. And I went from being able to be in my body doing yoga and meditation for hours and months at a time. I was training for triathlons to suddenly not wanting to get out of bed. And I was like, what happened to me? What happened to me? And I was uh, teaching a lot at that time to large, large groups, 100, 200 people at a time. And I didn't know that much about trauma at that point. In fact, the whole field was really starting to open. I got into therapy, I did some work, and then I left and I went and I worked at a, one of the big teaching hospitals in the Boston area. And uh, somebody had been to one of my programs and invited me to come and teach yoga and meditation to those on the dissociative unit. At night, I wasn't getting paid for it, but I really wanted to see, could I translate what I had learned and how I'd helped myself heal to other people? And um, wow, I had to relearn everything. How do you step it down? And then Bessel uh, heard about the work I was doing, invited me to join his clinic. And it was there that I started doing these groups I called Becoming Safe and Buddy. How do we step by step make it so concrete, so simple that the mind doesn't get freaked out about it? that the body can just do the next step without it having a big deal come up. So that's what I started doing. So the mm-hmm. idea is really about how do you break things down? And it was only later on, as I was studying attachment theory, that I realized this is the whole idea. You have kids, Diana. You know you have to take a big thing and break it down into smaller bits. And the de- attachment developmental theorists call it scaffolding, karma lines through. So... That's what I realized I was doing. So that's where it all came from. And your program is really skills-based, which is what I appreciate about it, because I actually think there's a lot of misconceptions about skills-based approaches where we think that maybe you're not connecting with the person, you're just handing like a toolbox. But actually, when you are not feeling safely embodied, you want some skills. And that's actually one of the kindest things that you can offer someone is some concrete skills to use to help you get back into your body, be present in this moment, feel safe in the present moment, even when the past is coming to visit you. And I'd love to today actually talk about some of the skills that you teach. And one of them that you start with is uh, around belonging. One aspect of belonging is like finding places or images or objects that make you feel a sense of belonging or being part of. And I, and I I, I would add it sort of like belonging with yourself, belonging with others, but then also belonging to a greater whole, like those three aspects of belonging. And in the in the book, you do this specific exercise of a, a cherished box of objects as a way to connect and feel a sense of belonging. And it, it just made me think a lot about when we were evacuating from the fires here in, in Santa Barbara, and I gave each of my kids a shoebox and said, 
okay, this, this is all you get. <laughs> what are you going to put in there? And what was fascinating was when we came back from evacuating to look inside their boxes and see what they put and the sweetest things that they put, the little pictures or the little objects or the rocks or the things that meant something to them and how much it's sad about who they are. So I'm just curious about that, that particular exercise, how you use that with folks to cultivate a sense of belonging. Exactly. You, you, you just said it so beautifully. It will, when I was leading live groups, it would be some people bringing objects in and telling a story about it and then allowing that richness of the story of the listening of others to elaborate even further and make it more real. And there's two bits to it. There's the actual object outside, but then there's the internal experience. And the whole idea is linking that together so that I, I can reteach my body relearn how to live inside and have that felt experience. Because if somebody's feeling uh, overwhelmed all the time or in anxiety all the time or depressed, they, we become so used to that state that we forget there's another option. And so how do we train our body, mind, and heart to say, oh, I want this experience instead? Yeah, and even how we carry that feeling of belonging in the in the scary spaces, right? So it was just sort of so symbolic. Like here we are leaving our house during this traumatic event and I have on my lap my little box of belonging, right? And that we have that within ourselves. And I think about um, that we could even do this with each other. We could, and this is where I think it's very helpful, storytelling and sharing more yes. personal aspects of ourselves. And I was actually thinking, I have an um, event coming up where our office space is reopening with some new people in it. And I'm going to invite them. We're having dinner. I'm going to invite them to bring a little box of cherished things and share. It's like show and tell because I love that exercise so much. So, so we have belonging as the first skill set. And I'm curious how that relates to your understanding of attachment theory, because I know that you're very steeped in attachment theory. That's something that I don't have as much experience in. How does that relate? Like, why, why is that the first skill that you teach? The BFC skills really came about way before I knew about attachment theory. And this was really a bottom-up experience of what helped me. How can I translate that into other people? And then I learned the theory of attachment theory. And one of the main uh, ruptures that happens to everybody is attunement. And I think of it as one of the fundamental attachment needs that we all have. Is we need to be attuned to. We need somebody like you who's so good at connecting with people and knowing that you're just not an object. You, there's actually a human being in there. And your curiosity and interest, uh, you know, leads you right into that space. And the other person, me in this case, are like, oh, yes, I want to be with Diana. For many people, that didn't happen. And so it can, we can equate the two. The rupture in belongingness is also the rupture in attachment, attunement, not having that, not having somebody care that there's another human being over there that's interested and has something to say. One of my girlfriends I was recently with, she's a psychologist, and we were talking about our children, and she said, you know, I heard somewhere that one of the key aspects of attachment with kids is letting them see you enjoying them. Just you enjoying them 
and then seeing you enjoying them, like how incredibly soothing that is to our attachment system. And you, you've written about this sort of seven um, fundamental attachment needs, and it seems like that fits into some of those seven. Can you, exactly. can you, can you speak to those? Dan Brown, my mentor in attachment, when he talked about this idea of uh, what Kohat called being the apple in someone's eye, this idea of expressed delight of playing like, oh my God, you're so incredible. You're like, you're the most interesting, unique person I've ever met. That sense of like delighting in somebody just because they're there. They may be goofy. They may be unusual. They may not fit in. They may be beautiful. They may be ugly. It doesn't matter. But somebody's like, oh, wow, that is such a missing piece, especially with people who have some kind of trauma. So this sense of being able to develop once again, this idea of being delighted in and expressing that delight and being able to receive the delight, being able to be like, oh, yeah, right. this is what it's like. It's safe to have somebody see me, get me, delighted me, because that's often where the ruptures and attachment come from. So what are some of the other attachment needs of those seven fundamental attachment needs that you write about? Well, um, one of the main ones is uh, just safety, physical, emotional, psychological safety. That's primary. If you don't feel safe in your environment, it's going to be hard to uh, relax and be inside yourself. If you don't feel safe emotionally, it's going to be hard. So that's where boundaries come in. This very say primary place then there's about being able to be reassured and calmed and soothed are you okay can you be with yourself many people didn't have that um being delighted in being guided and mentored having somebody say here here's the next step not the big next step but the small next step that you can take it just flows easily and effortlessly I just dealt with someone around conflict and repair. How awful that is. You know, most people don't develop relationships where the conflict comes up because it does come up, but that it resolves itself in a way and between each other that actually deepens a relationship that makes it better. I know you do this with your kids. That is such a gift. And many people don't have that. And when we don't have that, that's what makes it difficult to have a secure attachment. Somewhere along the way, if we don't learn that you can let life roll off your back, that you don't have to take life personally, that you can actually be like, oh, okay, let it go. When you don't have that ease of well-being, we talk about it in the uh, Buddhist literature. If you don't have that capacity, it's even so much harder there too. So when we start developing these and are surrounded by these and live in the, the nest of those, a person develops what we call a secure attachment, the ability to be in life, reach and step outside of their comfort zone and try something new and different. Because every time we do something new and different, there's going to be some level of anxiety or trepidation. So do we have enough inside ourselves to step outside? And if something gets scary or overwhelming, do we have a safe haven to return to? So that cycle is something that John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth worked with, the sense of having a safe place inside, being able to reach out. And it's so natural and normal. 
there's all the research from these developmental psychologists who watch kids in playgrounds and said, oh, look at how they launch themselves. First, they huddle close. And then what allows them to step out? Having that sense of self inside. So if you haven't had some of these fundamental attachment needs met, uh, you know, the, those, those that you just listed as a child, it seems that part of your work in becoming safely embodied is how to start to meet those needs for yourself. And one of the um, really simple ones that you write about that I've also used a lot with in my work with eating disorders and Rhonda Merwin, who's an act, uh, expert, talks a lot about it, is that attunement and just sort of check-in of what do I need, of the pause and check-in is what do I need right now, and then actually responding to your core need, whether it's the need for comfort or the need for food in some cases or the need for rest. I am so excited that we are being sponsored by Art of Tea because I am a tea drinker. I drink tea almost every day, whether it's a cup of green or black tea or matcha to get me going in the morning or a cup of herbal tea late in the evening to relax before I go to bed. I think it's just a really nice way for me to slow down a little bit and take care of myself in the middle of a busy day. And the teas at Art of Tea are so good. They're really good quality. They're delicious. My favorite is their signature Earl Grey cream. I'm going to stock up on that. It's so good. And they also have a collection of teaware and tea gifts. And so they're not just for taking care of yourself. They're also great for giving to other people as a gift. I can't wait to get it for everyone I know for the holidays this year. And I love it when people give me a gift of tea for any occasion. So check out their website, artoftea.com, and you'll want to be sure to use the discount code OFFTHECLOCK20. You'll get a 20% discount off your entire purchase. And that's good from August through October 31st, 2021. We hope you enjoy their tea as much as we do. Can we talk a little bit about more about yoga? Sure. And um, some of the Favorite more, subject. Yeah, favorite subject. Uh one of, one of the things I really appreciate about you is how you physicalize some of these um, skills. So the like the standing on the mountain practice. Can you talk a little bit about how you use the like the actual physical aspects of yoga in your work? I'm going to give you a little meta perspective. Yeah. And um, so what I love about yoga is the transformative aspect of it. And in yoga, there's this idea that prana, the life force, is moving through us, pushing us, nudging us, taking us home to ourselves. It's reminding us, don't stop there, keep going. But what happens is, certainly happens to me, is that life intervenes and I tighten up. Mm-hmm. I make a mistake, I do something wrong, and my body holds that. Now, my body can hold it on multiple levels, physically, emotionally, psychologically, energetically, and we shut it down. And so at some point, we have to let go and let it come through. And the gift is it can move us through. I've just gone through a whole process the last six months of just like identity shift, who I thought I was, just getting like, annihilated i don't like it when i'm in the middle of it but it is i can see a glimmer on the other side and i have faith because i've been through it a few times so the question is how do you teach somebody how do you support somebody in making friends with that experience so here's 
multiple postures you can do it with, but just take the simple mountain posture, hold it. What's it like to hold it and hold it longer than you think? And suddenly your mind is going to be telling you all kinds of stuff. Your body's going to be hurting. You're going to feel pulsing and shaking. So what if you just start noticing this is mindfulness, right? But it's also concentration. Can I, oh, my body's going to, I'm, I don't know, something that's going to happen. No, like really, I'm going to die. This is and, awful. And the mountain posture you're talking about is the mountain posture where you're standing with your arms straight up in the air, <laughs> not where with your arms at your side. Right. Yeah. Where yeah. you could even Which is a little more challenging. Yeah. You're just activating your system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what is happening then is your unique configuration is going to get activated. Mm -hmm. And that's prana coming through and saying, here, honey, let's let's, let's let this go. You don't have to hold on to it anymore. We're like, but when we let it go, it's like, please, that's what's possible is meeting that and then feeling afterwards. What thoughts do you have? What sensations do you have? What feelings do you have when you let go? Yeah. Yeah. And, and even there's, even within the holding, there can be a letting go. You know, yes. so so, so yes. one of the big teachers for me in yoga has been moving into a pose really mindfully. So say it's just a really simple pose, like a forward fold, right? Standing, but then touching my hands to the towards the ground and all the tightness that shows up in my body. And then I have a choice there of either I could try and tune out from that tightness or I could force myself to get mm -hmm. closer to the ground or I can actually let go in the face of the tightness. And that totally transforms what you're talking about with prana. Like it allows energy to move through me, but also I'm not resisting what is anymore in that moment. It's just sort of, this is what is. My body is, my body's tight. I'm a runner, have a lot of hamstring tightness. <laughs> but it's, it's actually a befriending of it that I think really helps. And some of these physical exercises can help with that. You can get that experience of that in the body, but then it's the same kind of feeling that you're going to get when the tightness and the gripping shows up around an emotional pain or emotional said. scarring. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. I love, I love the translation between, between yoga and the, and the, and the work that we right. do with emotions. It translates mm, I love the connection we have around that. Yes. Yeah. So mountain pose with your arms up. <laughs> and I think you said like 15 minutes, <laughs> hold it. Sometimes, sometimes when I'm leading people, I freak out because I can feel their freak out. Yeah. You know, what happens if you hold it? Yeah, you know? exactly. Even the thought of like, I can't hold it anymore. Okay, cool. That's just a thought. Yeah. Can you let that thought rise, crest, and follow? Yeah. You can drop that. Oh, no, I can't. I have to keep doing it. Everybody else is doing it. Right? It's just more of the same than you're just watching it. Yeah. Observing it. I did a lot of kundalini yoga in preparation for childbirth. And that's what she would have us do a lot of in the kundalini is like hold poses or do a lot of kriyas, which are like movements and notice it rise and fall. And she did that because she would say, this is what, this is what a contraction is going to feel like. It's going to be intense and then it's going to be a wave and it comes and goes. And that's the same with our anxiety or our panic or our grief. It comes in a wave and then our head does all sorts of things to tell us we can't handle it. And that's when we usually sort of lock down and get rigid. But right. to unrigify, or I think that's the word to use, unrigify, um, is, is, is so helpful in those moments. Right. And, you know, I, I'm exploring it now because I have arthritis in my hip. 
Yeah. And it's a shock not to be able to be as flexible in my system and seeing all the the beliefs that come up underneath. And that's retaught me about how we're never done. We're never done. Can I be in this moment so that I can meet it with as much kindness, as much gentleness, and let the beliefs just move through, move Mm -hmm. through. They don't have to stay. They don't have to be, they don't have to define me. Not easy always, but I think that's the gift of life. How do I be with myself in whatever situation that life presents itself? Yeah. How do I stay present in my body, in the moment, in the process? With out getting like spinning out into my head and my story and and all those Mm -hmm. ways that we try and avoid what is. Another practice that you that you teach is uh, around discrimination and externalizing, and you use things like art to do that, um, physicalizing parts of ourselves. Can you can you speak about that and 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 sure. why that's helpful? Yeah. Well, I started seeing this so much in groups and individuals too, but you see it really loudly in, in groups is people um, think that their feelings are the only, uh, their reality. And they didn't realize that what they're feeling is not necessarily the truth of the situation. So a lot of that was about externalizing. We didn't have that name for it then, but it's taking this internal experience and putting it outside. We talk about it in chair work. Tobin Bell does a lot with this in compassion focus therapy, taking what's activated in here and moving it outside in some way. You can also do it with your hands. So you feel inside and you're like, ah, I'm nervous. Okay, so what is nervous? If my hands were to mimic nervousness, maybe it's like this. That simple thing allows people to take it from inside, put it outside, and then how do you shift it into something that's more soothing? Maybe there's a flow to it. How would, what would be soothing to you? So you have to tune in this to flexibility and the pliability in the mind that you're talking about with that. Just knowing inside myself that I can shift it. So that those are simple ways. Drawing is another great way. Every time I would lead a group, people say, I can't draw. I don't know. But then you give them crayons and paper and they're like, okay, color means it, it shifts somebody from the left brain into the right brain and allows something new to come up. And they're always surprised. And people then can relate to it in a different way. It brings up an inquiry about what's happening inside. Again, another huge missing piece for people is nobody was interested in what was going on inside me. Now, somebody in the whole group might be. So that's powerful. Yeah, I love the the words that you use around fascination. And then it links to curiosity. And when we have a a stance of curiosity about something, it's just you have more of an openness towards it as opposed to a shutting down. And I remember I used to run groups at an immune disorder treatment center and my my co-facilitator was a psychodramatist. For, th- for folks that know what psychodrama is, you actually act out, you like physicalize the different parts of yourself in this drama. It was very fascinating to work with her and I learned a lot from her. And some of the the things that she did at the beginning of the groups would be things like she'd give us everyone a styrofoam cup and then she'd have you sort of shape and reform the cup into what you're feeling in this moment 
and then talk about it. Right. And there's something about that. Like if you if you can observe it, then you aren't it, right? So if, if I can exactly. make the cup what, what I'm feeling in my body and then share it with someone, it doesn't feel so much like I'm consumed by it, fused by it, all like that's all of who I am. But here it is out here in this form of a cup. So I, I love those types of ideas. And honestly, actually try it. Sit down and draw out your feeling. And it's a pretty powerful thing to do. If you're a journaler, maybe instead of writing in your journal, just draw for five minutes in the morning and, and see if it, it gives you a different experience. I would be curious about it because I really like that you, you bring that into your work. It's great. And I love what you said about the cup. And these are simple things that people could do on their own. Yeah. It's, a, it's so wonderful. I think that's, that's one of the reasons why I came up with this whole thing is because people would be like scared to leave the office and be alone with themselves. I was like, how can we find ways for people to have support? What you do in your daily journal is like how to help people have the support they need between contact points so they're not alone with themselves. I also really like that you do breath work. And I actually think breath work is one of the key pillars of health that we have neglected for so long but yet has been practiced for so long as understanding as a key pillar of health and also of uh, taking care of our emotional selves. I'd love for you to share with us a little bit about, you know, it's called pranayama in yoga and how you use pranayama. And then, and then we can also talk a little bit about the science behind it because there's a tremendous amount of emerging science around pranayama and its benefits, not only for health, but also for mental health. Well, I started playing with it with people in some ways just... You know, because in living in an ashram, you do a lot of pranayama. And it's like, but how do you step it down? Since somebody doesn't get afraid because what breath work does is it turns up the dial. But if you can turn it up, you can also turn it down. So how do you creatively use it in a way that works for you? So there's an idea in yoga, which I know you know, Diana, about kumbhak at the top, holding the breath at the top or holding it slightly at the bottom in exhalation. So playing with it, like, Okay, so you're anxious. What's it like to take a breath in, gentle breath in, and gently hold it? Like you're holding a, a tender little bird right between your hands. So just hold it gently and then let it go. And just notice what happens. Okay, you're still anxious. Just take a breath in, hold it gently, and then let it go. Simple. Awesome. What happens at the bottom of the exhalation? So you breathe in. You exhale. Just pull the slider. And just see. Maybe that makes you more anxious. Maybe it makes you more depressed. It's so important to know how it affects you. You're the wisdom keeper of your own body, mind, and art. So you get to experiment what works, what doesn't work. It's, you can do all, you know this so well. Take breath in, hold for four exhale, you know, do all kinds of things. It's, it's almost doesn't matter. It's just, can you let your body teach you? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because in terms of, I'm reading this book called Breath by James uh, Nestor. And he, oh, that's, that's a great book. It's, it's a great, it's great. I mean, he covers all different things about breath. So the importance of breathing through your nose and uh, the importance of really slowing the breath down. And a lot of these practices have been used 
for a very long time. So slowing your breath from an, like an inhale of five to six counts and exhaling for five to six counts, which is part of like con- compassion focused therapy. They use that with um, soothing rhythm breathing. But I think what is interesting to me is doing this type of breath work also just really helps you get in your body. Because oftentimes when we're caught in our, like in a traumatic experience or we're in extreme anxiety or we're in depression, we're so much in our heads. And being able to have the awareness to, okay, I can go in my body and I can work with my breath inside of my body, even noticing like how I'm, how I'm holding my breath, doing an intentional hold, interestingly, helps you not hold your breath. <laughs> because when you get to the point of, I can't hold anymore, you exhale and then you just naturally take a big, long inhale. So some of these real simple breathing practices are super helpful for folks to get back into your body and also experiencing it in a different way. And not being afraid of it. Like when I, back in the day, you know, we'd say, oh, take a long, deep breath. And people like, ah, I don't want to do that. You know, it's like, no, just notice the breath that you have. Start there. And then what happens if you play with it and interrupt it in some way and just see see if you can control yourself and it just opens the scope and the possibility of what's what's there like i don't have to stay rigidified in this experience that i thought i had to her exactly and not staying rigidified in it i like that term rigidified how can we be more playful even with with our breath and um that's great so another Playful exercise that I actually helps you helps you not become so rigidified that you talk about in the book is retelling your story from different perspectives. And I actually use this this past week because I have an emerging teen. Slowly, he's a preteen, but he's emerging, and there's some video game conflict that we get into. And I um and I had the, my whole story about it, and then I started trying to practice retelling the story from different things, like from the perspective of the 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 actual video game <laughs> and then from his perspective. But can you talk about that that practice of telling and retelling your story and why it's helpful, especially oh. with trauma? You know, I, I was so moved when I met Michael White, who is a narrative therapist from he and his colleague in New Zealand. You know, he would work with schizophrenics in the most moving way. And that's part of where I got this idea from is how do you tell a story from a different perspective? And what that does is it creates flexibility in the mind. It creates a whole new view. It unrigifies us. So if I'm in a trauma state, I am being hijacked from within. So I'm, it's like, I only see this. I only see how, how life is bad or going to hurt me. But what if I'm a dust ball in the corner? Watching this, I do a whole exercise on imagining you're 80 years old, 88 years old, and you're telling yourself about your own life and how you got from where you were to 88 and what was the process. So just another way to have you see there's possibility that you're not stuck. And so, I, and also I wanted to create more play because yeah. so many people get so, including myself, get so heavy around things. It's like, okay, how do we lighten it? How do we make it easier? Um, and maybe create a little space for play or fun or lightheartedness and see what's that like in the body? Yeah. 
Well, I'll tell you that when I did it with my son and I was trying to replay the story of the video game, <laughs> the video game was saying things like, well, he just wants to play with me. He's just a kid. What's <laughs> oh my God, up a bit, mom. <laughs> so it's helpful, right. right? All of a sudden you have this fresh perspective in of my story isn't necessarily the whole story, which I think really can Did you can tell your son? Yeah, yeah, we talked about it. I try and talk about it, especially, you know, lighthearted stuff with this with them because mom. I want them... Well, I want them to have these skills growing up, right? Some of the skills that you're talking about aren't necessarily just skills that you need to recover from trauma. They're just skills for living a life that better is whole life, right? and yeah, living better and and um, being embodied in the world. You know, it always is so moving to me to hear mothers like you interact with their kids and allow them and teach them and guide them and to see somebody becoming solid inside because the research is that one in four of us pretty much in the western world has a secure attachment which means three out of four of us don't that's shocking shocking to me so when i hear and i see and i get like the gift that you give i'm so grateful well, it's not without a lot of mistakes, though. So I don't want to paint the picture of the perfect yes. parent because I think that's a dangerous one to paint that, wow, Diana's like doing all these psychological flexibility skills on their kids. I I mainly do them when I've made like a massive error. <laughs> but that's <laughs> when I've, the like, beauty stuck of my it. foot in my mouth and been angry and yelling. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I mean, it is the beauty. And I think that's also you know, some of what you offer is just be kind with yourself in this process. There's no really and one right mistakes. way. make mistakes. Yeah. Make mistakes so that you can repair them. Yeah. Like, yeah. isn't that the gift? Yeah. Not to be perfect, but yeah. to be like, okay, let's find a way through this. Yeah. The sweet moments when we do that with our, with ourselves or with other people is, you know, we make mistakes with ourselves too, and that we can work on repairing the mistakes we make with ourselves. And I think that comes up you know, at least for me and working a lot with folks with eating disorder histories, how much shame there is around even just how they've dealt with their life circumstances, right? And some, sometimes it's, I've harmed my body or I've harmed, you know, I've harmed, I've hurt others because of what, what I've gone through. And that practice of compassion with ourselves, I think is really, is really important. I wanted to talk with you about mindfulness because the mindfulness strategies that you teach, um, I really like how you use both concentration strategies and observing strategies, but there's a bit of controversy around mindfulness and trauma because there's sort of this risk associated with if I if I go in and I'm mindful with, with my experience, am I just going to get deeper and entangled in my fused self stories and this like, you know, storm that I can't get out of? Can you talk about how you teach mindfulness and maybe some of the risks associated with it, how you deal? with that, with folks? Well, this comes totally from my own experience being on retreat, you know, and this was way before we had a lot of awareness about meditation and trauma, but um, it's about being skillful with it. So the whole purpose of mindfulness is to allow something to come up and pass through and move on. But what happens is the drawback is if I'm so able to focus and be with something and name it and name it and I lose track of myself, then that stuff is going to come up and it's going to open up 
everything inside and blow it up inside. If you start naming something and paying attention, and then you need to focus on something else. That's the concentration practice. So you use it judiciously. So mindfulness can bring stuff up. Its whole purpose is to bring it up. But it's how do we titrate it? How do we build enough of a self inside so that we can be with it? But concentration is, if I'm triggered, I need to be able to go where I want to go instead of getting like caught up in the trigger. And that is a huge skill that people are. It's like, okay, I want to go there. I want to go there. I want to focus. Oh, Diana, there's a yellow pill there. I'm just going to look at the yellow pill. I'm going to stay with the yellow pill. I'm just going to bring everything to bear that. Now, what can the drawback of that is certainly the way it's often taught with mental and like kindness is it's about bringing forth love and warmth and compassion and goodness. But that could be scary too. So as you're focusing on it and all this, your heart starts opening and your bhaktiness is like, and then all of a sudden you have to use mindfulness. Oh, I'm triggered. Oh my gosh, look it, I'm triggered here. This is what happens. But here I am in my house, all is well, da, 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 da. So using them back and forth is a way. Yeah, I, I love that. And I'm always translating things into act in my head or right. yoga. I feel like there's all these different languages. Sometimes I feel like I'm trying to be multilingual and understand the different ideas. But what you're sort of alluding to there, if, if, if folks are act therapists, is having flexibility of your attention so that you're not completely consumed by what's happening inside of you. You don't have all two eyes in. Or you're not so like hypervigilant of, you know, what's on the outside, two eyes out, but that you have an eye in and an eye out and the, the flexibility to be able to move your attention and ultimately move your behavior where you want it to go. Beautiful. And yes. Yeah. Yeah. So mindfulness is a real helpful skill and, and you teach the different types of, of sort of you teach mindfulness practice, but you also teach the concentration practices of Meta, which is a loving kindness mantra practice. And I'd love to talk more about Meta because that's becoming more uh, popular, I think, in the West. Folks are using Meta or talking about Meta more, especially with like Sharon Salzberg and all of her work. But can you share with folks what Meta is and, and why you teach that practice and how it's useful? Such a great question. Let me just sit with that for a moment. I think it was because when I was going to meditation retreats, it was about cultivating loving kindness for yourself. Sharon was my teacher back then. Wow. But it was also that all that stuff started coming up. Why I shouldn't be loved. Why I wasn't worth it. Why all that starts coming up. And so what uh, Chris Germer and Chris Neck have done since is bring in the whole idea of self-compassion. So important because that stuff does come up. But self-compassion, compassion practices, metta, um, equanimity, those are all part of the, what we call the Brahmalaharas, the heavenly abodes in the mind, this ability for the mind to rest. So bringing it up is so important because so many people don't have that kindness. They don't have that capacity. They don't have that ability to just be kind to themselves. You know, you can talk about it as self-compassion. You can talk about it as loving kindness. In some ways, they're, we can, they're, they're intermingled. They can use them in different ways. But being able to do that. So I started doing that because I wanted people to see the best in themselves and see the best in other people. So that especially as groups were starting and people were starting to come together, 
it would allow their hearts to be more available to themselves and to the other people. So that rather than being activated and scared to death, they could begin to see like, oh, people are good out there. People want to actually be kind to me, see the life differently. And that allowed a whole different felt experience. You know, it was really a dropping into the body, into the heart versus just staying in the mind, being in that activated heart systems. So Meta often has sort of really common phrases like, may I live with ease? May I be healthy? May I be happy? They're sort of these kind wishes that you do for yourself and then you offer to others. And then if you're really advanced, you offer it to enemies. <laughs> Which is always like, can we do that for your ex-husband? That's really hard. But <laughs> it cultivates sort of a different, um, I guess if you're using Paul Gilbert's model, it's like a different um, mode of your mind, which is the compassionate mind. And that can help with the other modes of the threat system and the drive system when they're uh, pretty dominant with folks. One of the mantras that you teach in Becoming Safely Embodied is hamsa or you do so hum they're two different versions of the same the same mantra and it's what i appreciate about you is that you haven't appropriated yoga you haven't done that thing that folks do which is like i'm just gonna like distill out the parts that i like of yoga and leave all the tradition behind you actually keep the tradition and the truth and it's because you lived in an ashram and there's just a different quality to you in terms of your understanding and practice and teaching of yoga and so I was so pleased to see Hamsa, which is the way I practice it, Hamsa, in, in, in your book, because that was the first mantra that I was ever taught mm. when, I, when I went to ashram during graduate mm. school. And my, my story around yoga was that I was suffering so much. I had to withdraw, uh, take a break from my PhD program and went to an ashram in Boulder to learn about yoga. And that's actually part of what really healed me and allowed me to go back to school again. But when I went there, I, I was so in the headiness of school and I was like, I need like, the, I need like a mantra. I need, I need the protocol of the yoga. Like give me the really complicated thing. And my yoga teacher came and she said, okay, well, I have, I have a mantra for you. And it's breathe in and say the word hum internally and breathe out and say the word sa. And I want you just to practice that for a while. <laughs> and, you, and it's not even out loud, but it's just breathe in hum and breathe out sa. And it just means I am. So I, I love that you taught that. Uh, I'm curious for you about, about mantra, how you use mantra and, and what it was like sort of writing about that particular mantra in your book. Oh, gosh. Well, I trained in and I love the non-dual teachings and the idea of I am is powerful. But if somebody doesn't have enough of a self inside, that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So what I began pondering is like, how do you be at one with everything? The good, the bad, the ugly, the mean, the happy, the joy. I am all of that. I'm all of that. There is no separation. And when I can embrace all that, how can I be connected to all that is even when I don't like what is happening? Um, and it's the foundational bit of what I really believe is that trauma is a modern day body self We are being trained 
to transform our suffering into compassion, just as you did. Just as you did. But it takes everything. And so we need practices that remind us, I am everything. I am all of this, even if I don't want to. How can I gather up all of that? Allow it to come home. Allow myself to be at peace with all of it. Because it's not just all the icky stuff. It's all the good stuff. Well, I think that's a beautiful place to end. Mm. I am that. You are that. She is that. They are that. We are that. And we are one. We are one. Yeah. Yeah. And you are such a gift, Diana. Really, your joy just keeps getting bigger and bigger every year and in more and more fullness. And I so appreciate what you're doing on the planet and creating space for people. Well, I appreciate you, Deirdre. I feel like you're sort of like the wise, the wise woman mentor out there doing a few steps ahead that I, that I, I, it's helpful to have someone to look to that's doing this important work. And for folks that want to be part of your Becoming Safely Embodied community or want to learn more as a therapist about how to use these skills with their clients, what's the best way to do that? How can they find you? There's two ways. One around trauma is we have a safe guide. It's a 40-page information about being in the body and called the Safe Guide to Healing Trauma and Attachment. So it's dfa.com forward slash safe guide or simple. And then we also have uh, an attachment profile. We call it the relationship profile. And that's dfa.com forward slash profile. The whole idea was there just to have you take a look at what is it that's going on inside? How do you fit in? And what's the positive and what's the drawback of these profiles that we, these imprints, attachment relationship imprints that we have? So those are fun ways to to do it. Great. Well, we'll link to all of those in our show notes and let's stay connected and um, wonderful to see you again. Ah, delight. Thank you, Diana. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.